welcome back to By the People with Rose McAllister and Epsilon LeClaire. By the People is a Article 1 and BOTP partnered podcast, giving you discussions with real Congress members about the issues that matter to the people. Today we have Senator Jeb, uh, the senator from Dixie and sponsor of the Federal Reauthorization Act, the Low Income Home Energy Assistance Plan Act, and so many more. I could go on and on. I am just so glad that we could have you on. Uh, thank you for coming to By the People, Senator Jeb. Thanks for joining us today, uh, Senator Jeb. Um, today's topic is economics, so we'll be having a pretty in-depth conversation about that today. And uh, for our first question, uh, I think I'm going to start pretty broad. Um, and just talk about uh, what do you believe the role of government should be in the economy generally? And uh, how do you believe we should um, achieve that role? Um, and yeah, I guess so, I'll uh, start with you, Jim. <laughs> yeah. Good to be here. Thank you for having me on. I'm uh, glad to have this conversation with you all. Um, so uh, the role I view the government ha uh, having in the economy is to ensure that nobody gets left behind. You know, it's a big country with a lot of people in it. And we have a we have vast disparities between the economic well-being of the people at the very top and the well-being of the people at the very bottom and the government has a lot of ability to even the playing field you know um, help strengthen unions and do things to help the the poor and the middle classes you know just just Take that, take that next step towards improving their lives, the lives of their families, and just living a good life, you know, a life with dignity, a life without stress um, for, you know, covering rent, uh, paying for health insurance, all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I think that's, I think that's the main role for the government. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's a, that's pretty, um, pretty relatable, I think, for a lot of people, especially um, on the left. Um, I definitely agree with that. I mean, to me, like, the role of the government and the economy is definitely to make sure that everybody has a, a life of dignity, that they can reach their um, their full potential. And when you have to worry about, you know, where the money is going to come from to get food on your table that night, it's pretty hard to be able to, um, you know, reach the the reach the highest potential that you can, to be honest. Like, you it's it's pretty difficult to make those kind of long-term decisions that that will Absolutely. set you up to get to where you want to be in life when you have mm -hmm. to worry about oh am i going to have enough money for food today or can i afford my rent can i afford my medicine um and so really like it's not only just that it, it helps um them as well it, it, it helps all of us to be honest when people can um do what they are actually good at and what they like to do um as much as possible um because you know we just don't do as well like our economy there's essentially I'll, I'll just call it dead weight there, there's dead weight loss essentially when people are stuck in jobs that they're they they have to be in because they 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 can't afford to be able to invest in themselves to do something else that's probably more productive for them um that they're probably better at um and so, yeah, making sure that people can make those longer term decisions, um, because poverty itself, it's, it's kind of a, 
it's kind of a self-repeating like cycle because when when you're impoverished, it's it's hard to think about the long term to be able to escape poverty when when you're just thinking about you know how to get by day to day. So yeah, yeah I, I think the government definitely has a role in that because the fact of the matter is it's just incredibly difficult for any person no matter how reasonable you are to, to escape poverty right and it could just be like, mentally taxing too right like to mm-hmm. be when you're at um a, an income level where you're struggling to even determine if i pay for this thing that i really want to do and would you know help me feel uh you know passionate about the world again passionate about life again even if it's just like an art project you can't spend 25 dollars to get the materials for an art project or something like that and then you're because you're like deciding between whether or not you can get bean more beans and rice for the rest of the month you know um those that's, yeah and that um, mentally taxing yeah yeah and uh, poverty poverty is actually associated with you know a variety of uh, adverse health outcomes you know including um, higher rates of infant mortality uh, higher death rates just mm. it it's uh it, it's go it goes beyond just living a life of comfort and just just being poor makes you more unhealthy and yeah it's it's something that the government has you know the ability to um you know, you know to combat and so would if we have the ability to we have we have the duty to you know yeah i mean so going along with that you know you you speak about more health problems which is true people um with lower incomes tend to tend to have more uh health problems overall um due due to those factors um associated with with that income um and the issues that come from that um but like i think it's important then to think about the fact that you know what i'm talking about for example like it's it's a cycle of being in poverty of, of not being able to escape like it this might sound weird but i think for people who have experienced it they kind of know this it is expensive to be poor people don't realize this it is more expensive to be poor than it is to be middle class or rich comparatively because when 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 you don't have um a very strong income you have to buy cheaper things like a cheaper car that might break down a lot that you have to pay for repairs all the time um or cheaper clothes that wear out faster um or you have health conditions now because you can't eat healthy because you can't afford um uh you know uh fresh food and vegetables um you know it's and then that that comes with all kinds of healthcare problems um you know like for diabetes for example very common um especially l- among lower income individuals it actually frankly it would just help everybody i mean to to for us to have a more equitable and um prosperous society because like these it's it's kind of intersectional i mean I, I think we could talk about intersectionality with all the different things that you know your income affects whether it's your health your your um uh your your your, your life prospects etc um you know it's it's a it's a big deal so to say like it it really is it it's it affects so much um and and it's so difficult to get out and i i think that beyond just the practic the practicality of just you know being able to help them to get out of that is uh to get out of that cycle of poverty um 
you know, there's also a, a moral obligation, like you said, um, to, to help as well. Yeah, so um, that's that's something that I've been intensely focused on in the past almost four months that I've been in government, um, you know, working with the Temporary Aid for Needy family, Families, TAMP, and mm -hmm. Food Stamps. Yeah, you've done amazing SNAP. work, by the way. <laughs> thank you've you. You've done so, great you work. <laughs> thank you. So what what I've been focused on is removing work requirements and expanding access to these programs as well as increasing the government's de um, appropriated funds to those programs so it's just an expansion on all fronts and it you know it's just you know we, we can talk about um about how um difficult it is to be poor but you know when when we're in government we have to find ways to actually solve the problem you know and the the welfare state is something that you know we we have we have we have the tools in place we just have to um, remove some of the worst sides of them right? like the uh, requirements and then you know just just take care of take care of the programs that are in place you know so i actually, yeah I have, yeah absolutely i have a question um just because sure. i feel like jeb you've um worked a lot with welfare programs and such and then I, uh, Senator Epsilon I know that you've worked with Jeb um, closely in some of those for some of those pieces of legis legislation um, how do you typically respond uh, Senator Jeb when people say that welfare state is really just a band-aid and then it ends up making people more reliant on government aid I don't buy that um argument at all well i kind of i guess the band-aid argument makes a little bit of sense but i mean bandages have real medical um needs and they're not cosmetic you know they, they stop the bleeding right they you know so actually band-aid might be a, a compliment really be because practical. you know they stop the yeah. bleeding right. yeah, they help you help you heal and uh you know and when when your family is less poor you know, I think I think we forget get um, the lives of children in this sometimes. Uh, you know, when when the families are poor, the, the children are growing up in that poverty too, and growing up in poverty also really has lifelong negative impacts. So when when families are less poor, children are more likely to go to college, um, less likely to be uh, to grow up in. Uh, commit future crimes it's just it's just on and on down the list making sure that children are less, uh, growing up in less poor households just has long-term positive side uh, mm -hmm. positive side effects yeah so yeah um yeah yeah definitely um and then i think then that? yeah go ahead senator epsilon <laughs> i was about to i was about to go kind of on that route um yeah. so I, I was gonna ask then um so along that route, then, so what, what, you know, concrete um, policies or solutions can we, um, you know, uh, pursue to, you know, create a more, you know, fair and equitable economy to where um, people don't have to deal with those those struggles as much. For example, uh, Senator Jeb, you've been, you know, doing a lot of work with um, a lot of uh, programs such as, uh, you know, temporary assistance for new families, TAMF. 
um, and also SNAP um, as well, um, with an, another excellent and vital program. Um, and then you worked so, in the federal budget to make sure that we had um, housing vouchers, that we, we bought mm-hmm. the appropriations for housing vouchers. Yeah. Yes, tenant-based rental Absolutely. assistance. Yeah. Um, you know, so along that route then, you know, how can we go forward to make sure that our economy works for everyone and not just, um, you know, the, the wealthy few, essentially? Yeah, so something that I'm going to be focused on in the next session, if I'm reelected to the Senate, is putting in place a federal unemployment insurance expansion. Uh, mm-hmm. Just, you know, I, I think that I think that um, providing just uh, topping off the uh, uninsurance, unemployment insurance benefits and just adding $200 a month, uh, $200, I'm sorry, a week to everybody's unemployment insurance would go a long way to making sure that, you know, when people are unemployed, they're not losing their homes, they're not going without food, you know. Um, so I think I think that's something that we could do federally that wouldn't be terribly difficult uh, i think that's something that that i will definitely be looking at and then also um i'll be looking at tackling social security uh you know it's a daunting task but i think that we can do um an across the board benefits increase and you know not on you know because i was talking earlier about children's poverty but we also have to worry about elder elderly poverty and social security is maybe one of the best federal programs that we've ever had and we can make it better and we can just make it better by increasing the benefits across the board so i think those yeah. two things are something that i'm going to be looking at in the uh, next six months if i'm reelected. absolutely um and you know on that on that kind of same uh path um that when you're talking about for example unemployment well that's a that's a big reason for example i, I totally support increased unemployment benefits um, but I also, um, you know, in the Senate, um, I, I introduced and we passed into law the um, the Federal Economic Security Act, which basically creates a program to kind of avoid having people get into that situation of being unemployed in the first place, which I think we, we of course, want to avoid not saying that people shouldn't be given aid when it happens. Um, right. But basically, it, it encourages um, keeping people employed during times of crisis, like, for example, pandemics or any kind of economic downturn. Um, and, it, and it makes up for any loss of income that they would normally get um, by, by reimbursing them for the time that they've uh, lost while they're on those what are called short-time um, compensation plans um, that keeps them employed instead of being um, having to go find another job. And so that's something I think um, I would definitely um, like to continue uh, using as well. And and uh making sure that that uh employers and and employees are are well aware of that option um but yeah i mean absolutely i think that in general we need to be making sure that that people get the aid they need to where um unemployment or potential unemployment is not um the the threat that it that it used to be um i yeah um, but going along that, then actually, Rose, did you have anything you wanted to um, say about that? Well, or... I, kind of, I kind of agree that 
that if we're not paying attention to um, the overall, like, I guess, factors uh, that we can touch on, I just, I mean, like, the expansive, like you were, uh, like you said before, the uh, intersectional nature of um, economics, specifically uh, in policy, I think if we're not addressing the root cause, again, I think that's kind of just going to be a... Uh, a slogan from me is like trying to find the root cause because if we're not addressing wealth inequality at the stages of you know uh, mm-hmm. racial uh, prejudice and redlining or if we're not looking at generational wealth that plays into the into say the housing market or even just general um, income levels like if we're not paying attention to all those factors when we're addressing wealth inequality and and specifically welfare programs um, where it's just going to keep being, um, find, we're going to keep finding the next problem that this didn't solve and the next problem that this policy advancement didn't solve. And so I think finding the root cause is always going to be, um, or at least, you know, the foundational cause, that's what's always going to be the focus, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. I think, so I think that at the other end of the welfare state is of course a, a fair tax system and, I think that taxes are the main way that you can help reduce income and wealth inequality. You know, you don't you don't want to reduce income inequality by by bringing everyone down. You don't want to just you know kill the economy so that there aren't rich people. You want to you want to make sure that uh, you know not 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 really trickle down economics. That's not what we're talking about. But mm-hmm. making sure that everybody is sharing in the wealth. You know, yeah. and Taxes mm. are really the way that I think that we want to be doing this. Yeah, pay the, pay, yeah. paying the, a fair share, you know, that kind of thought Absolutely. process, I think, yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I mean, yeah, I would say the number one most um, really, I, I would say, effective mechanism in, in um, fighting income and wealth inequality in the long run um, is probably definitely taxes, I would say is you just need you need um a fair system of of public revenue um to allow you to be able to put those policies in place Mm -hmm. um so you can uh create a more fair and equitable economy and 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 system for everyone um but on that point then um so uh so you talked about intersectionality for example and we can talk about intersectionality and how that um how the economic issues people face is, is very intertwined with, for example, race. Um, so uh, wh- wh- what do you believe would be um, the, the best way that we can do to reduce the, the rather large racial disparities we have in the economy? Because with income inequality, it's gotten, it's gotten better. Um, and to my understanding, um, at the current rate, which you know, after the other statistics, I'll, g- I'll give you this sounds a lot better. It seems like we might get near racial parity in income um, within a few, maybe six or nine decades, it seems like, which is a lot. But when it comes to wealth inequality, it's looking like a few centuries, actually, at this rate. Um, and so how can we, um, you know, reduce racial disparities then? when it comes to not just income, but also wealth inequality, because that wealth inequality is very important too, because whenever something happens, whether it's um, a pandemic or an economic crisis, like what happened in um, 
uh, 08 and 09, um, you know, people fall back on their wealth to be able to um, handle the effects of that. Um, and w when uh, communities of color have um, uh, a wealth that's only 10%, um, or oftentimes even less than, than that of white communities, um, it, it's very difficult for those communities to be able to um, work together to bounce uh, back. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So, yeah, I think I think that's something that um, I absolutely think about all the time. Uh, and I think ultimately the best way to reduce the uh, racial income gap and racial wealth gap, which you know, the wealth mm -hmm. gap, like you mentioned, is much larger than the income gap, is ultimately to in increase the the economic well-being of the lower classes because when when you increase the wealth of the lower classes you are you are going to reduce that racial wealth gap um i don't have the statistics on hand but um i, I know for a fact that that it that, uh, that ultimately a race blind way of doing the welfare state is ultimately going to um you know re reduce that gap and it's, it's a matter of really putting the putting the federal budget towards um, the welfare state and historically one of the main ways that the uh, racial income gap was increased was by the reduction of the welfare state and you know races were pitted against each other um, throughout history and when when the when the lower class and you know this class solidarity class solidarity you know we, we really lift um you know the title of all boats so i think i think uh that class solidarity is really the way forward yeah and it can't mm. it can't just be you know the they don't pay their fair like like you were saying pitting pitting um us against each other in the long run led to the um inequality within the welfare state and the way that it was applied and um so if, if we're just constantly, mm -hmm. you know, the, the poor people are eating up all the resources is what the rich people say. And then the rich, uh, the poor people say the rich people aren't paying their fair share. You know, now it's an us versus them instead of a how can we support each other to live to life's potential. So, Right. You know, uh, Fred Hampton in the 60s, uh, he, he worked to build the Rainbow Coalition in Chicago, mm -hmm. you know, and... Uh, that was i think i think the rainbow coalition i think that had the the right idea there yeah i would agree definitely mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah um another thing we should definitely look at is um you know we can we can provide aid to these communities but as we said before it is more of a you know a band-aid and, and that's good it's good to have that but we also have to look at the more structural issues below the surface and so one big issue that communities of color have this is an issue that I've been big on for a long time now um, is, and this applies to really any poor community, but especially particularly communities of color, which unfortunately you, you will, you just hear a lot when you look at statistics because it's just race is just such a large amplifier of uh, the, the issues we have in society. Um, and, and that would be access to credit um, so they can invest in their communities because in a lot of these communities of color, the vast majority of people have 
oftentimes little to no credit. And the only credit they can get oftentimes is just payday loans, which are ridiculous um, and exploitative oftentimes. I think the average is like 391% is the average uh, interest rate on payday loans. And for a normal person, a normal payday loan borrower, it takes a few months to pay that off. It is not just a, a one like they get it and they pay it off and they're done. For for most people, it takes several months to pay it off. Um, and so increasing access to credit through um, a public banking system, for example, a functional one, um, would really help these communities, especially if we did that. For example, there's been a proposal for a while now um, to use um, the Postal Service and, and their facilities to um, allow people to access credit um i'd want to go farther than that of course um but uh yeah so uh those kind of solutions to where um communities can and individuals within them can invest in themselves um and have the ability to actually build a long-term economic base for their um for the prosperity of their communities that's incredibly important so important um and, and to give them access to you know, non-exploitative, you know, reasonable loans or grants, for example, um, would would um, massively benefit those communities. And, and that's something I'm big on because there is so many people who, there's so many talented people in these communities and they get overlooked because of where they live or the color of their skin. And they just, nobody's willing to believe in them. And so we need to be there as a community, as a, as a country, and believe in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, so if we were to, I guess this is kind of just a, a, hyp a hypothetical ideal world kind of uh, question, but if we were to have an economically equal system, what would that ideally look like? What is, is that full equality? Is that equity? What is a... a a economically equal system look like because I, I I can't even imagine what an economically equal system would look like if there was you know it, do we have rich people still what do they pay what is mm. it, you know that's I guess I would I mean and I think that's a, a very big and broad question that's very it's kind of hard to even think about that because like our society right now is so unequal that it's, it's almost like, as you said before, it's almost fantasy-like. But I, I would say that for me, that, you know, perhaps there are, you know, more, there are people of higher incomes and perhaps some more wealth. But you wouldn't have these disparities that you see today where people make uh, 300 times more than what their their average worker makes, for example, um, etc. Um, I think you would you would see a much more you'd see a much smaller income gap um, between um, the working class and, and uh, I'll call it the managing class or the upper class. Um, so so to me, you know, we, we, we would have a society where, um, you know, there, there aren't really any, there isn't anybody who's who's struggling to, to make those basic needs. And we don't, we also don't have anybody who's just rolling in wealth when arguably that, that wealth would be um, much better, like not only just 
morally, but also practically just much more effective if it were to be shared with, with the workers. Um, yeah, like like uh, Majority Leader Epsilon said, I, I have trouble even picturing such a such a society. You know, our our, our economy and our society almost runs off of the inequality right now. Um, so it's kind of um, kind of like uh, it's just it's hard to even picture what it would be like because it would be fundamentally different from the ground up and. I think that we can work towards getting there and I think maybe at a certain point we just have to see where it takes us. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and sort of on that point then about um, the system working, you know, for certain interests over others. Um, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about public banking. But in general, um, you know, in regards to, for example, I think the, the banking sector is an area where really financial interests, you know, these large, big money financial interests really still dominate. Um, and so one proposal that, that me and Rose have in our platform is to limit consumer loan interest rates. That's things like credit cards, and it's also to prohibit um, payday loan lending, which is highly exploitative and abusive. Um, and so, you know, I, w I would just ask um, to you, Jeb, is, is that something that you would consider as limiting consumer loan interest rates? Um, or... You know, do you think there's maybe another solution that that might be more ap applicable? <laughs> That's um, it's it's a it's a topic that I haven't looked into great depth, but I, I can tell you that I'm definitely in favor of of capping those interest rates. You know, um, we have these these variable rates that are just ridiculous, and you know, it's just people get buried in in debt and interest, and yeah, I think. That, that capping the interest rates is something that we can do really quickly and easily and would mm -hmm. provide meaningful, immediate aid. And then, you know, we can take a longer look at the credit industry as a whole and see where we can make improvements. But absolutely, there's, there's no reason not to put a cap on, you know, credit cards because anything like even 15% is a lot. And certainly anything over that is it, just it is a lot. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Like double digit interest rate alone is frankly really, really high. And to get up to even fifteen percent, like I don't know, I, I've had loans that are um like eleven percent and it that's pretty bad. Um mm -hmm. but Absolutely. like I can't imagine fifteen percent or even higher because right now oftentimes, you know, credit cards you get, especially for people without very good credit, um it can be 17, 18, 19%. And I just can't imagine, um, you know, having to pay that. Um, but uh, on on that, uh, on another note then, I, I did want to bring up, um, so recently, um, relatively recently, um, we we passed the, the Living Wage Act, um, as most of us probably know, which uh, for those of you who, uh, aren't fully aware of its details. It basically increased the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour um, over a period of of time, and it also indexed that minimum wage to um, CPI, Consumer Price Index, aka the inflation. Um, the Supreme Court just gutted a large part of that and basically um, very limited 
Um, it's it's applicability. I cannot pronounce that word. Applicability. Um, we'll go with that. Um, applicability. Towards. Yes, thank you, thank you. Applicability. Wow, that sounds so much better. Um, uh, you know, for what what jobs that that can do that that I can apply for. Basically, right now, to to my understanding, if you're working in a in a fast food place, you're you're probably not going to um, have that federal minimum wage protection anymore. Um, it's really just limited to those directly engaged in in interstate commerce, to my understanding. Um, so, in, in that regard, um, what do you think think about? Uh, um, first of all, what is your opinion of the Living Wage Act and, and that kind of reform to make sure that there's at least this baseline wage that we have for people? Um, and then, you know, should we strengthen the Living Wage Act, um, including through possibly constitutional reform, to um, essentially uh, allow us to do what the Supreme Court said that? in my opinion, which was a mistake, but the, the Supreme Court has said that we cannot do as, as um, elected officials in Congress. Absolutely. So I'm right there with you in rejecting the the premise of the Supreme Court's ruling that the federal government uh, can't impose a, a minimum wage, um, like in the Living Wage Act. Um, but given that we're in a situation we're in and the Supreme Court has uh, laid down the ruling, I definitely support a, an interstate commerce amendment to the Constitution. It's mm -hmm. something that, frankly, should have been done a long time ago, but was kind of, uh, you know, worked around for decades, you know, going back to FDR. And I think, I think actually putting that in the Constitution would really open up avenues for helping people and, you know, putting in place good and smart common sense regulations in the economy. And like you said, strengthening the Living Wage Act and, mm -hmm. you know, Man. doing, doing what, doing what, uh, what, we, what, we, what you tried to do there. So. <laughs> yes. Um, all right. All right. Um, I excellent. That, um, I think if it's going to be enshrined in the Constitution, um, there needs to be strong reasoning behind it because, you know, it's much, it, it's difficult to have something um, enshrined in the Constitution and it can be just as difficult to have it adjusted or removed. Uh, however, right. So I, I don't, I, I don't I actually just think support a, a, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I don't actually support a minimum wage. Um, amendment uh, to the Constitution at this time. Uh, I'm not. I have to take a bit deeper look at that, but I'm not sure that's something that I would support. Um, but the the interstate commerce amendment would be what I would support, and that would enable us to um, pass the law that enables the Living Wage Act. That's that's just for clarification. Yeah, absolutely. I mm. yeah. That's the same clarification I was going to make too. Thank you for um, saying that, Senator Jeb, because I agree completely. It, whether a minimum wage amendment would be something I would agree with. I, I can't say right, right currently, but um, better strengthening Congress's ability to legislate regarding the interstate commerce um, and, and, mm -hmm. and adjusting the, or, or amending the interstate commerce clause, um, I think would be mm -hmm. very, very valuable and something I would stand by. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. Um, 
And then, so on another point, then, um, a big issue for a lot of the workers who are affected by, who are affected by this decision and also, um, uh, yeah, minimum, minimum wage workers in general, um, you know, a, a big issue for them is, is their, a lot of them are part-time workers, um, or they're de facto or <laughs> they're de facto full-time, but they're treated like part-time workers and they have inconsistent schedules. Um, what, what would you think about maybe, um, uh, increasing, uh, fair scheduling requirements, um, that way, for example, if any, anybody here has worked in a, a minimum wage job, most of the time they are, um, the schedules are unreliable. They can call you in at a moment's notice. Um, you don't get a lot of leeway oftentimes with, um, uh, the hours that you work because it really just depends on what your employer wants. Um, you know, what would you guys think about that? Because I don't know if any of you guys have personal experience with that, but like if somebody worked in grocery retail, I can tell you that um, the scheduling was always unpredictable and <laughs> unreliable. Some some weeks I would get, you know, full-time hours essentially, and then other weeks I would get less than full-time. And I think they did that just so I would stay just below the amount of hours to, to keep me part-time. Um, yeah, which that's, was, that's the common uh, practice. It's it's well known. Yes. Walmart does very similar to their part time workers. Any anyone under management, you basically get worked right up to that mm. line of under forty hours, and um, and then you know they'll be very strict in regards to your timing, uh, like when you can clock in and clock out. And I know some will break labor laws. Some Walmart specifically, we have evidence that their their staff and their management team will break labor laws and, and have people mm -hmm. work off the clock just so they don't have to pay them overtime. And yeah. so these those are common practices. Um, we do have, you know, some labor laws intended to protect people from those um, abusive practices. It doesn't change the fact that they still happen. So the mm -hmm. question I think for me in regards to fair scheduling um, legislation would be how could it be implemented so that it wasn't infringing on um, like what so that it wouldn't be federal uh, overreach and then how I guess would we implement that specifically in a way that wouldn't be easily manipulated or abused how would that system be implemented to protect the workers um, the way that it, it, it would be designed to um, I guess is my question, but if it were properly, if the if the revisions or excuse me, if the provisions and the um, the definitions and such were were well written and the the bill was clear and not easily uh, manipulated, I think that that'd be something I'd absolutely stand by because having you know family members that have worked uh, fair you know, or uh, minimum wage jobs for most of my life and, and sometimes two or three at a time. Um, yeah, those, those <laughs> hours can really cut into your life. If suddenly you're the only person that your manager can call in. And if you have any kind of responsibility at that job, or if you have any kind of expectation for performance, then y you could just be put, you could be putting your job on the line by refusing to come in. So that, those that is true. It's very hard to refuse oftentimes. Yeah. Yeah. Just beyond yeah, just the, the fact that they're your boss, yeah. like you not accepting, like maybe once or twice. I think most employers are not like cold-hearted individuals, but when it happens repeatedly, 
even though you're not required to be there, you, you weren't scheduled for that, it, it looks bad because of, frankly, the working culture that we have yep, here in the exactly. U.S. You're not seen um, as a team player. Yep. Exactly. Um, and so it's very yeah, difficult it, to refuse. Yeah. What were you going to say, Senator? At, at a certain point, if you're, yeah, at a certain point, if you're on call, you're practically always, you know, working, you know, um, mm. if you, if, if you have to be ready at a moment's notice to come in at something that's always on your head and, you know, yeah. work, work-life separation is important. And, you know, I, I've worked, I've worked corporate jobs and companies like to talk a good game about that kind of thing and say that you should keep keep a keep a keep a balance there but then they'll do anything in their power to remove that that balance because mm. you know at the end of the day they're out to make a profit and so yeah the bottom line i think mm -hmm, so i think i think uh these fair scheduling requirements i think that's an excellent idea and it's something that i'd be proud to support in the senate yeah definitely um i think going with that work-life balance it's that's an you know, a very important thing beyond just the inconvenience sort of, of having to, to work hours that you weren't expecting or maybe you get like a lot less, you know, this week than you did before. It's just really incoherent, you know, and if you're your pay, you know, if you're going paycheck to paycheck, well, if one week you're working practically full time and another week you're working, you know, maybe only 20 hours, um, that can make a big difference for someone mm -hmm. if they're working paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. Um but, but beyond that, you know, th there's also the work-life balance, which is that it's extremely difficult to make plans with friends, loved ones, to, to take care of um, people, oftentimes. To go to school. These workers. Yeah, like if you have a family or, you know, if you have school, for example, um, it can be difficult to set time aside for that. Like if they if they need you, need you to watch children or take care of um, an older family member, it can be very difficult to... Uh, to really take care of that when you can be called into work all of a sudden or to get, um, to get the skills necessary to get out of that minimum wage cycle mm -hmm. you know that too like like you were saying like your time can be strained and if your time is strained and you are mentally and physically drained from working and being yeah. uncertain then it can be very hard to go and pull yourself you know to use a turn of phrase that I despise pull yourself up by the bootstraps and go to school and like get your your degree so that you can mm -hmm. move on it's it can be incredibly demotivating to work a minimum wage yeah. job especially when you're being well, unfairly paid that that's the thing though it's that one a lot of the people with these jobs really need these jobs so like they need the money so they're being called in and they're like you know um and they, they need the money, they need the hours, and if an employer goes, well, this person isn't reliable because they're not a team player, they might give them less hours. Right. Um, and so they, they need the money, but at the same time, they also <laughs> they also can't, because of the fact that they're doing these, um, these other hours that they weren't supposed to um, or weren't reasonably scheduled for ahead of time, um, uh it makes it difficult for you to make those kind of long-term investments in yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Um, as you were saying, because I, I, you know, I've done work full-time and gone to school and it is exhausting when, you know, I have school in the morning, um, till noon and then I, I, I get off for example, and 
and I'm at work for an eight hour or more shift, you know, if they, they want me to stay longer because it's really busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then get home at what, like 10 or 11 oftentimes. Right. Um, and then you have school work to do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very difficult. Um, exactly. So, so it's a, it's, it yeah. maintains the cycle, um, too. So mm. uh, again, yeah, again, another reason why I would, I would support the, the legislation, um, mm. m- maintaining its, uh, its, uh, flexibility, I think would be my only caution, but, mm. um, yeah, absolutely. Anything else that you thought was super pressing, uh, majority leader Epsilon that we should be Um, not... Yeah, let me check mine. I always write some questions at a time. Um, not really. I think we touched about everything. I think we had a pretty good conversation. So, um, Senator Jeb, did you? Yeah, we could discuss. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think, I think, uh, the ratification of the We the People Amendment is, mm. um, maybe underrated at this point in terms of reducing corporate influence, um, mm. you know, on our government and ensuring that, you know, you know. Since, since we ratified the We the People Amendment, we we know mm-hmm. that corporations aren't going to own the gov- own the government, and yeah. regulatory capture is something that was a big concern for most of this country's history. Uh, you're you're totally right. Um, you know that 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 is, you know, I think I think you said at first it was kind of unrelated, but but it really is related. It's just indirect, but it's important. Because as we were talking right. before, um, this all interconnects with one another. And when our when politicians rely on corporate um, money to be reelected, well, those corporations aren't donating you for fun. Uh, they're donating to you because they believe that it will it will benefit them. Um, and right. so they're they're there to turn a profit, and they're not exactly. donating to you just to see you happy on election night. They're donating yeah. donating to you. So that they're happy when you make votes that directly benefit mm-hmm. those corporations. Absolutely, and so so when we have a government that that unequivocally works for the people, uh, and it, and the campaign finance system is by the people, so we're we're financing people by the people instead of by corporations. Um, you know that that's going to lead to better policy outcomes for the people. Because instead of them making decisions based on satisfying their their corporate donors, they're making decisions based off of the public interest instead. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Senator Jeb. It was great to have you on, and uh, you provided a lot of really good insight for us. Um, Anything you want to say to our listeners? Any messages you want to send out? Um, no, uh, I, I'd, I'd like to ask for everyone's support in the upcoming election. I think that sending, um, sending myself to the Senate along with Sandra, uh, Representative Sandra and Majority Leader Epsilon, I think uh, sending us back to office would be, be the best course mm-hmm. of action going forward because we, we, we've got a lot done, but we still have a lot left to do. And I think if you look at Majority Leader Epsilon's platform, you'll see a lot of great things on there. Um, you know, we, we yeah. spent a lot of time talking about economics today, but, got, but you know, he's got he's got um, stuff on there about defense, education, electoral reform, foreign policy, mm. healthcare, on down the list. So, um, yeah, so I'd just say look at his platform and vote for us. Absolutely. That's all I've got. Yeah, well, thank you so Yeah, much. there's a lot to do. All right. <laughs> thank you.